recall, we spent the entirety of the week defining this term widow, in particular with regards to our culture and how the term widow can most definitely be lost on us today without having it defined scripturally. So this morning what I want to do is I want to look at the context of the passage we find this term widow where it says, honour widows who are truly widows. Now for any of us who have been going through 1 Timothy from the beginning, we have found Paul in particular with regards to 1 Timothy to be saying many a weighty thing. He has been tackling many issues. We understand that, that this letter is addressed to Timothy for the church in Ephesus. But it's also a letter to us, the church today, and will be continually be a letter of instruction from our Lord until the day that he comes back. That being said, if you have been journeying through the last four chapters, I would say nearly all of us have come to an issue that Paul has addressed to Timothy through this letter that has been perhaps problematic. It is a book that is extremely, or a letter, it is a letter or a book, whatever you want to say, that is extremely confrontational with regards to certain interpretations of women's roles in the church, with regards to alcohol consumption, with regards to dress, with regards to many different things that we have covered, even down to leadership roles within the church. And what I want to do this morning is I'm going to unpack, by God's grace, the meaning of this term, honour. And what Paul is emphasizing here with regards to widows who are truly widows. But what I also want to do is I want to set the stage for what is to come. As I said to you last week, we saw that in the beginnings of the first century church, one of the very first ministries that was done through the church, by the church, for the glory of God, was indeed looking after widows. We looked at the the argument that had arisen between the members of the first century century church, those who were from the Hellenists' point of view and those who were from the original line of the Jews. In other words, the Jews and the Gentiles were starting to argue over the daily distribution and the needs of the widows. So what Paul is going to do, and we will go through the discourse that Paul has given Timothy here, is he's going to set out what exactly the church's role is for caring for widows But more than that, he's going to do something that is extremely controversial and if we're not careful, can come across in a very unloving manner. He's going to stipulate what is the qualification, so to speak, of a widow to be able to receive the daily distribution or receive financial aid from the church. And he's going to very quickly say to us in the verses that are come, who is to be enrolled and who isn't to be enrolled. And although we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, Paul is going to start stipulating certain people whom he sees, although they profess to be Christian, although they profess to be a widow, they very clearly are not. And he's going to start to give us the qualifications, as I said, as to whom is to receive and whom isn't to receive. Now, for those of us who understand this cultural term of Christianity and love and missions, Paul is going to fight against and argue against here the need to step away from a humanistic point of view. Step away from humanitarian aid purely on the basis of need. Paul is going to emphasize there's a difference for the church with regards to those in need who are part of the church and those in need who are not part of the church. 
And he will go, hopefully we'll see as far as to say, if you are living in a certain way, in a certain manner, you'd receive nothing from the church. So as I said, I want to set the stage before we go any further next week. I want to define honour, but I want us to understand that today is basically going to be a springboard of what is to come. And also I want us to, re- to recall everything that we've looked at so far. So before we get into that bit, I want to define honour. So whenever we read the word honour widows who are truly widows, and as I said, the weeks to come we will define that term truly widows. But what does it mean to honour widows? And it's a particular word here that, that I see Craig is looking at Craig, that Paul uses here. The term widow, or sorry, term honour. If you turn with me to Exodus chapter 15, we're going to see what exactly I believe Paul is saying here with regards to the term honour. not Exodus 15 Ten Commandments who's good with their, with their Bible where are we Exodus for the, for the Ten Commandments Exodus 20 is what it is find it yourself Exodus 20 verse 12 here we have Moses in giving the Ten Commandments and he cites here in verse 12 honour your father and your mother That your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. He then goes on to say, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbour, you shall not cover your neighbour's house and on it goes. So for those of us who are familiar with the Ten Commandments, we're familiar with this term honour. To honour your father and your mother. Now again, for us today, we we don't use that term honour, we don't... You throw it about in our, in our modern vocabulary or our language. So what does it mean from a biblical point of view, and, and particularly with, with regard to this word, honour? And Jesus defines what this commandment is. And hopefully by that defining of this commandment, we can understand what Paul is saying whenever he commands us to honour widows. So turn with me, if you will, and we'll unpack what this means in Matthew 15, verses 1 through 6. Matthew 15, verses 1 through 6. So here we have a conversation between the Pharisees, the scribes, and Jesus. And we read in chapter 15, verse 1 of the Gospel of Matthew, where it reads, Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now the question being posed here is not one from a biblical point of view, but one from a religious point of view. They don't say, why does your disciples break the commandments of the Lord or the commandments from Moses or the law of Moses? It's simply the traditions of the elders. In other words, traditions that have been birthed from those people throughout the centuries. And the tradition was that there was an understanding that there was a demon that lived on your hands. And that if you did not wash your hands, you would then ingest the demon and become demon-possessed. 
Now it's first out of biblical ramifications that we could turn to them, we're not going to, but you can in your own time. Whenever there was set washing instructions for priests before they were to go in to fulfill sacrament duties, before they were going to go into the Holy of Holies. That was particularly for the priests, but not for the people. So this religious ideology was birthed throughout the centuries to this point that you were commanded by Scripture, even though you weren't, to fulfill these requirements of washing before you eat. Jesus obviously knowing that not being the case and not being sin, not to wash your hands, him and the disciples don't do it. So that's the context of what's being asked here. He says, and as they asked in the tradition of elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered, Jesus' answer is, and why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? So they ask the question, why do you break tradition? And Jesus poses the question back, why do you break biblical God-given commandments for the sake of tradition? He's going to define what he means. Verse 4, for God commanded, honor your father and your mother. So Jesus cites here the law that was given to Moses that we just read in Exodus, that you're to honor your father and your mother. Now Jesus is going to define what it means to honor your father and your mother. And he says, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you said, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Now very quickly, what's Jesus saying there? We'll read it again. But you said, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me. To honor your father and your mother, defined here by Jesus, is a financial honoring. Those of us who are children, those of us who have our parents look after us in our infancy, even into our maturity, for those parents who spent their money on us, looking after us, whenever our parents get into an elderly state where they're no longer maybe able to look after themselves or to take care of themselves, maybe financially, it is up to you and I to honor our parents as God stipulates. Financial is the honor. The honor is not simply by calling them father or mother. I'm showing you honor by that term. It is clear cut here by Christ. The honor is of a need basis, a financial basis. That's what it means to honor your mother and your father. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God. And there was a tradition that the Pharisees brought about based upon nothing to do with God's commandment, which was a tradition. That what they could say was, yes, mom, yes, dad, I've got a nice big bankroll, but what I'm doing is I'm devoting that to God. Therefore, the, your needs would not be met because the son or the daughter would be taking their finances and devoting it to God. They get to keep it, but it's devoted to God. And after all, what I have devoted to God, I can't give to you. Nowhere in scripture is that mandated, nor in scripture is that given. Rather it is said that you are to honour your father and your mother when they get to the age where they need you now to take over that role of looking after them as they so diligently looked after you in your need. Therefore Jesus is saying here, you're a hypocrite. You're taking the word of God, you're making it void through a tradition. So Jesus is clearly answering here what it means to honour your father and your mother. And indeed it says in verse 6, 
in, in need not honor his father. So for the sake of your traditions, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you when he said, The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He goes in again to here to bring in the spiritual aspect of honor, which is we can say we honor God. We can say all those things, but if your heart truly does not honor God, it doesn't show through your actions. Same true for children who don't honor their parents. Mom and dad, I love you. Mom and dad, I care for you. I would love to give you something, but I devoted it to God. Therefore, tough. Love to, love you lots. Don't really care how you're going to feed yourself, but hey, I devote everything I have to the Lord. But I honor you by saying I love you. And Jesus said, you're a hypocrite. That's an honor that is not true. He then goes on and says, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So here we have what's going to springboard us into what we're hopefully going to, showing us and defining us what honor means. If we are to honor widows within a church, it is not simply by giving them the seat at the front of the church and having them go out cold and hungry. It's not simply by giving them entitlements or plaques on the wall. It is a simple financial need that must be met. That's why for many Christian countries who are birthed out of a push in Christianity and where the majority of the society call themselves Christians, even though now they're not, that's where you will normally find the welfare system. You'll normally find biblical principles that have been implemented at a governmental level because the need is seen to be there. You go to many other countries that have no Christian influence and are practicing different religions where this is not taught. There is no infrastructure for those who are poor or nor needy. So if you understand here, hopefully you're tracking with me, to honor someone is not just by giving them a title or a place of prominence within those circles. It is meeting the needs that they have. And if you don't do that, then you're a hypocrite. You said you care for the widows, but you don't meet their needs. You're a hypocrite. And also where it says there, in vain do they worship me, teaching the doctrines, the commandments of men. Now turn back with me to 1 Timothy. So this idea of teaching doctrines of men, how does that impact us when we come to study 1 Timothy? It should impact us in a great way. For many of us, as I said, as we've gone through the entirety of 1 Timothy, it's on the screens behind me where it says, The church, not you always wanted, but God always wanted. And then when we track down through 1 Timothy chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, particularly with regards to chapter 3, we come to massive callings for anybody who is a Christian. Massive callings with regards to our dress, massive callings with regards to how we act, massive callings with regards to our roles and submission. And if we're not careful, everyone here, I believe, including myself, has to have been pricked by one or not or more than these verses that Paul has stipulated. So what do we do? If we can't get rid of this text, if we can't argue against this text, we have to do something that is now becoming prevalent throughout the church. We disqualify the text. How do we? We have one choice. We either believe it and implement it, otherwise we're hypocrites, or we don't believe it, And we say it's not for today. And the reason why it's not for today is because maybe Paul didn't even write it in the first place. I have a transcript here of an article that was put into the newspaper I want to share with you. 
I'm not going to tell you who wrote it, but it has to do with 1 Timothy. I'm not going to bore you with reading the entirety of it, but I want you to hear the argument. So for those Christians who don't want to believe that women's roles are in the home, this is what they're going to say. For those Christians who don't want to believe that women are to be submissive to men, this is what they're going to say. For those Christians who don't want to believe the term wineless, and that Christians are not meant to be people who consume alcohol, this is what they're going to say. For those who have a problem with regards to a Jezebel spirit within the church, and how you are to dress, not like the culture, but rather as we're called to in all purity and holiness, this is what they're going to say. Or whatever else you want to take from it. Eldership, leadership, women's roles, women's pastors, women's ministers, women's elders, all these things. Because if we're all honest, it's very, very difficult what we've just gone through if we have to implement it all in the church today. So this is what the argument is. Apart from the most rabid fundamentalists, rabid being like a crazy dog, fundamentalists, among us, nearly everyone admits that the Bible might contain errors. A faulty creation story, a historical mistake there, a contradiction or two in some other places, But is it possible that the problem is worse than that? That the Bible actually contains lies? Most people wouldn't put it that way since the Bible is, after all, sacred scripture for minions on our planet. But good Christian scholars of the Bible, including the top Protestant and Catholic scholars of America, will tell you that the Bible is full of lies. No evidence of such but his opinion. If they refuse to use the term, talking about lies... And there is truth. Many of the books of the New Testament were written by people who lied about their identity, claiming to be famous apostles like Peter, Paul, or James, knowing full well they were someone else. In modern parlance, that is a lie. And a book written by someone who lies about his identity is a forgery. Now again, I'm going to jump through some stuff here, so to save us having to hear it all. Most, again, most We have good Christian scholars, most modern scholars of the Bible, shy away from these terms. But we understand that throughout undergraduate programs, this is a pollution. And he goes on to stipulate how these lies are polluting people's version of the Bible. Then he says, Moreover, or sorry, whoever wrote the New Testament book of 2 Peter claimed to be Peter, but scholars everywhere except our friends among the fundamentalists, will tell you that there is no way on God's green earth that Peter wrote the book. Someone else wrote it, claiming to be Peter. He goes on. Second Peter was finally accepted into the New Testament because the church fathers, centuries later, were convinced that Peter wrote it. But he didn't. Someone else did. The same is true of many of the leaders allegedly, or sorry, letters writ- allegedly written by Paul. Most scholars will tell you that whereas seven of the 13 letters that go under Paul's name are his, the other six are not. The authors were were merely claiming to be Paul. In an ancient world, books like that were labeled to be lies. For people whose lives don't depend on the Bible or even people whose faith from a biblical matters is a secondary issue at best. But in fact, it does matter. Whoever wrote the book of 1 Timothy claimed to be Paul. But he was lying about that. He was someone else living after Paul had died. In this book, the author of 1 Timothy used Paul's name. And the authority to address a problem that he saw in the church. 
Women were speaking out, exercising authority and teaching men. That had to stop. The author told women to be silent, submissive, and reminded his readers about what happened the first time a woman was allowed to exercise authority over man. In that little instant in the Garden of Eden. No, the author argued if a woman would want to be saved, they were to have babies. And he cites 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. He goes on to say, The problem, of course, is that Paul never said any such thing. Now here we go. If this is the argument that it is obvious that you want to take, and we can go into church history and how even the idea of the fact that the canonizing of Scripture is not written by the authors that are said, and the, the, biblical, sorry, the historical evidence and the archaeological evidence to back that up, we don't need to go into it. But this is the reality. As crazy as all this sounds, if we don't want to take what is written in 1 Timothy to be the gospel and to be the commandment of God, what other option do we have? He goes on to say, because the passage is, oh, sorry, he says, the problem of course is that Paul never said any such thing. And why does it matter? Because the passage is still used in the church leaders today to oppress and silence women. Why are there no women priests in the Catholic Church? Why are women not allowed to preach in the conservative evangelical churches? Why are these churches today not, do not allow women even to speak? In some small measure, it is because Paul allegedly taught that women should be silent, submissive, and pregnant. He goes on to say, saying about these so-called writers, they were creatures of time and place, and so too were their teachings, lies, and all. That was in the New York Times, was in many different other newspapers, and it is written by the distinguished professor of religious studies in the North Carolina University and is one of New York Times' best sellers, Bart D. Ehrman, the distinguished professor. So when we come to understanding 1 Timothy, we have one or two choices. As laughable as that is, as much as we go into how it is nearly an impossibility for what we have here before us to be deemed to be authored by anybody else, even the fact that the church fathers were so diligent as to take uh, commentaries on the fragments and the letters that were there that we could actually put together. Some said 95% of the Bible just based upon the historical evidence of those commentaries. But that doesn't matter. Because we have one or two choices, as I said. And this is truth for us. You might agree with that letter. You might think that's the funniest letter that, that you've ever written. The book that he was talking about that he goes on to, pub to publicize is a book called Forged. And by doing that, he erodes the inerrancy of Scripture. So that the verse that resides behind my head no longer applies. For how did he finish it? It was for the liars at that time and that place. But we Christians are a lot more cultured today. Therefore, let's throw aside First and Second Timothy and hey, anything else that comes against the norm of culture today. And we might say that that is a complete fabrication, but let's be honest, how many of us have read what we've just gone through and been completely convicted by the Holy Spirit and said, I need to start implementing some of this stuff? How many of us have left here after we've covered some heavy topics and said, that's just Gary's opinion? Or how many of us are going to read exactly what we're reading here and say, this is a letter from the Apostle Paul to Timothy to go and sort out the church that is in complete disarray. And that is why he's so precise 
with everything that's in here. Because if we can discredit Paul and his authority, then we can make sin subjective, can't we? If this isn't true, and the entirety of God's word is not the God who speaks through this book, therefore we can make creeds and we can make doctrines of man the same as what the Pharisees did. Religion. We can erode what biblical marriage looks like. We can erode what roles look like. We can do whatever we want to do. We can completely discredit it all. Or, as he quoted, good Christians and those who are of a rabid fundamentalist background, that would be me, I believe the Word of God to be the Word of God. I might not like what it has to say. I might not understand how it applies for today. But I know one thing, that the God whom I worship was the same yesterday, is the same today, and will be the same tomorrow. So as I said, in, re- in reference to with regards to what we've looked at, and with regards to what we are going to look at, as problematic as they may be in today's culture, we have to hold firm to that this is the calling throughout the church age until Christ come for every single person who professes godliness and a follower of Jesus Christ. Just with regards to the term widow, some of you may be familiar with the news lately. I wanted to share this with you as well. It is an unmarried mother who wins the right to widow's allowance. Anybody familiar with the county anthem women? Woman? And for us in the Christian church, we might say, well, that's a good thing. And it is a good thing. But let us be careful of how the left and how the liberals are changing terms. They're very good at it. No longer we know do we define a widow as scripture defines it. No longer do we know do we define marriage as scripture defines it. We use the term partner. Well I don't but culture does. We don't use the term sex anymore. We use the term gender. Why? Because gender is a position that you can take based upon the culture that you're in. I can be female or I can be male based upon the cultural environment that I'm in. Sex is what you're born with as. This is what it says. I'll read you the, what it says about the, the, what happened to this lady. An unmarried mother from Northern Ireland has won a British Supreme Court battle to access a widow's parents' allowance for her bereaved children. It names who she is. Was refused the benefit after her partner, John Adams, died from cancer in January 2014 because the couple who had four children were together for 23 years were not married or in a civil partnership. Following Mr. Adams' death, says her name, had to take an, an evening job after being refused widow's parents' allowance by the Northern Ireland Department of uh, Communities. She initially won the case, and after so, it was overthrown, but that ruling was later overthrown by the British, court, or the British Supreme Court. The court also said it is now up to the British government to decide whether or how to change the law. We live in a secularized society that no longer wants to hold even to what the term widow is. Boyfriend, girlfriend is the term. The government's now going to have to define how long you have to be with someone. And see, this is why we have to be careful of how terms are being eroded all the time. The Bible isn't the word of God. Marriage isn't any longer between one man and one woman. To use the term wife and to use the term husband has specific meaning to it. Let's get rid of it. Let's use the term partner based upon civil partnership. But now that's not enough. Let's use the term partner even though we're not married. 
So that when we are in society, we will not be condemned for the fact that we're stepping outside of God's clear commandments, that we are in fact nothing more than boyfriend and girlfriend. That has a negative connotation to it, therefore let's set it aside. We should pay attention to these things. Because this is what is eroding the church. Terms. Gender. Partner. I went to a marriage. No, you didn't. You went to a civil partnership. This is my partner. No, it's not. Unless it's your dance partner, it's your boyfriend. Or it's your girlfriend. And that may come across as being mean-spirited, but we need to hold firm to what God says, that a family is meant to be within the confines of a marriage. We hold firm to what the Bible says. More than that, with regards just to women's roles, I talked to somebody this week, and they said to me, well, Gary, you have to understand that the culture and what we live in now, what First Timothy is saying, is more Victorian than biblical. He's a doctor of theology. Here's my rebuttal. He's right. It is very hard in our culture to say that a woman's role primarily is in the home. There's nothing wrong with part-time jobs. There's nothing wrong with if you don't have kids working outside the home. But to understand that as a biblical godly woman, I desire to be keeper of my own home. I desire to do what the Bible calls me to do. We're not arguing that. It's not saying women can't have jobs or anything like that. We're simply stating facts. And what he said is that's more Victorian than biblical. Well, here's my rebuttal. If he is indeed right, which is very hard for any couple today to only have one person working. That's true. It is extremely difficult for two people who are newly married or who have kids to simply say, well, I know it's God's commandment and that the woman's going to stay at the home. Therefore, the argument is what? For the sake of financial necessity, she must work. Therefore, we nullify God's commandment in Scripture. Right? What we do. Turn with me for a second to my rebuttal. is in Revelation 13. Now, I may be ripping this out of context. It has nothing to do with women working. But I think it shows us a precedent that needs to be within the church. Revelation 13, verse 16. Also, it causes all, both and small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. Here we have the prophecy of end times by John talking about the rise of the beast and how there is coming a time within our lifetime or the lifetime of our kids or grandkids or whatever it may be to come, there is coming a time when you will not be able to buy or sell anything unless you have this mark. We understand this to be true. Unless us as rabid fundamentalists, those who believe in the word of God to be true, that this is true, also going to be void. But let's turn to what the ramifications of it is if we turn the page to chapter 14. What happens if you get this mark? Now think about it. That means you can't pay your mortgage. You don't have the mark. That means you can't pay your rates. That means you can't pay your electric bill. That means you can't get groceries. That means you can't do nothing. It's an all-inclusive mark that allows you to be a part of society through that need. This is what happens if you don't get it. 
Many of us might say, I'll never get that mark. Well, this is what happens if you do get the mark. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. These worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. It's pretty clear cut. We're not going to receive the mark, I pray, I hope. But let's be realistic for a minute. We leave here today and the mark of the beast has just come out. Your car insurance is void. Your car payment can't be paid. You're going to go home and even if you don't have a mortgage, you need to pay your rates. You might get six months, you might get a year. You can't go to Tesco's, you can't get groceries. Your electricity is going to get switched off. Ultimately, you're going to be homeless and poverty stricken. Maybe they're going to bring in additional laws that anybody who houses or keeps Christians, we don't know. But let's say it's true and you have the mark of the beast, your mark's taken off you. Needless to say, it's going to be a simple, clear cut, get the mark or perish. Now, those of us who believe God's word is true, and although we may go through the persecution of the mark of the beast, we have everlasting glory awaiting us, don't we? How is it going to be any easier to choose not to take the mark of the beast and be poverty-stricken and homeless than it is to adhere to the commandment that a woman is to be keeper of her home? How is it going to be any easier to fulfill that biblical mandate than it is to fulfill this biblical mandate? Just using that as one setting. How is it going to be easier for anybody, whatever the cultural context, whatever the year, to have to choose between living a lesser lifestyle because you want to follow after the fact that if we're going to have children, you're going to have to be at home. It's not grandma's job to look after the kids. It's our job. It's your job. We're going to have to make sacrifices. Because that's the argument that I hear. It's not for today because it's not realistic, Gary. It's Victorian, not biblical. So it's going to be easier whenever we're homeless, poverty-stricken, when the mark of the beast comes, than it is to adhere to this. In church history, what we've just read in 1 Timothy over the last number of months was so normative that every single person subscribed to it. It's only in the last generation that things have changed. When the revelation comes, the same arguments that's been posed by this man with regards to the authorship of 1 Timothy will be posed for the authorship of Revelation. And Christians will be lulled into the same false sense of security to actually take God's word and allow it to be twisted into the fact that we can do whatever we want, we can live whatever way we feel like, as long as it is culturally relevant where we find ourselves in 1st Timothy we're about to go into this discourse of widows and have that in your mind this may sound harsh this may sound unfair but this is God's instruction to his church through Paul to Timothy everything that we've read with regards to whatever it is you want to choose giving people over to demons we read it in 1st Timothy 1 
people who are following after deceitful spirits and devoting themselves to the demonic. Men leading their homes, whatever it may be, you choose. It's either for today because it's God's word or it's not. So anything that we have come against with regards to anything within 1 Timothy or the entirety of God's word, we have to hold to this fact. His ways are higher than our ways. His commandment is what we're called to adhere to, not the cultural mandate. We're shaped by scripture, not culture. We're shaped by the Holy Spirit, not our experience. We're not shaped by how our parents did it. We're shaped how God instructs us to do it. So keep that in mind, as I said, as we enter into honoring widows who are truly widows, financially honoring those people who were married, who are Christians, and how does the church's role, not ministry's role. Let's close the prayer.